0: second annual meeting of the podcast Scary Story Society is about to begin, and I still don't know what they say in this show. Hey guys, Alex here from Basset Geek, and I'm joined as always in pitch black darkness with one candle in front of me, but I'm joined, as always, with Bobby and Walter, I think. Hey guys. I
1: don't think that's Walter. How's it going? Oh, well, no, it's just
0: the red as well. Ah. Well... We call him Walter, too.
1: Mm. At least give him a name of dignity like Craig.
0: Oh, God. But uh, here we are, boys. One year ago in September, we did our annual, well, it was the first, so it can't be the annual, but now it's the annual Halloween show, where we took a break from watching movies, well, talking about movies, and we put on some... Spooky, spooky stories. And uh, honestly, I really like that episode. It's probably where we first hit our stride as a podcast, being our fifth episode overall.
2: Yeah, I'd say that was really our first great episode. Oh, yeah. It It was one of the first, it was the first one that, like, yeah, I would send the podcast to, like, the group chats I'm in, but it was the first one where I was like, please listen to this. I'm very proud of how this turned out. Yeah. Well,
0: what do we say we hit some homers and try and do it again? How are we feeling? I'm
2: ready to get spooky.
0: Bobby, are you are you amply prepared to spook?
2: <laughs>
1: I don't know how to answer that.
2: Typically a yes.
1: Maybe?
0: Perhaps. Are you ready to get scary?
1: Well, we're sitting next to Walter, I don't think whoever's... Uh, any preparation needed?
0: <laughs> right, right. God, uh, damn it. So, Halloween in 2020—that's the real horror story, boys.
2: Yeah, this whole year has been a horror story.
0: We're a week away from the election. Less than a week from the election. Uh, Halloween on a full moon. Uh, we're going to be releasing this on Halloween. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of twists and turns. COVID is still a thing. Canceling most of Halloween. Uh, Bobby, you said today, at your work, which we will not disclose, uh, the Halloween stuff was basically already being turned into Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, like, in the seasonal section, um, it's basically just one aisle of candy. And, uh, I don't see it going, like, half price anytime soon. Yeah. There's a lot there.
0: And it sucks, because (laughs) Halloween is a Saturday this year, that's, that's the perfect day for Halloween. You know, most people are off work, most people don't have to work the next day. Saturday is made for Halloween. Or Halloween is made for Saturday. But um
1: Or Halloween is made for the boys.
0: Halloween is made for the boys. On that note, boys, why don't we start with some ooky spooky stories? Hey guys, before we start with the horror stories, I just want to issue a content warning. Some of the stuff that we read out, that will be read out tonight, is kind of graphic and unsettling. It's, you know, they're horror stories, so they're supposed to scare you a little. But some of them might get into some, you know, not so adult, well, so adult situations, but not not so family-friendly situations. So I feel like for the first time in forever, boys, Fuck. Fuck. Shut the fuck up, Walter. a boy. And uh, also, just uh, not really a warning, but just to reach out. If you or anybody you love having thoughts of suicide or hurting other people, please contact somebody you trust. You are loved. We love you for listening to our show. Even if you don't listen to our show out there in podcast land, we love you. We're here for you. Go to your priest. Go to your rabbi. Don't go to your cops, ACAB. But, uh, you know, love one another. So... With all that out of the way, let's get to some spookiness.
1: And for those who have a, uh, as the doctors say, a child's bladder, now's your time to run to the bathroom.
0: Are you saying you want to take a bathroom break before we start?
1: Not actually good.
0: <laughs> for once. <laughs>
3: good
0: God. All right, let's start. Now, boys, I'm sure you've heard about this first story that I'm going to lay on you. It is something of creepypasta royalty. This year, I've decided to put into the earholes I don't know where I went with this sentence, but <laughs> I decided to put into the earholes of our faithful listeners and for you guys, my friends, the story of smile.jpeg. I first met in person with Mary E. in the summer of 2007. I had arranged with her husband of 15 years, Terrence, to see her for an interview. Mary had initially agreed since I was not a newsman, but rather an amateur writer gathering information for a few early college assignments and, when according to plan, some pieces of fiction. We scheduled the interview for a particular weekend when I was in Chicago on unrelated business, but at the last moment Mary changed her mind and locked herself in the couple's bedroom, refusing to meet with me. For half an hour, I sat with Terrence as we camped outside the bedroom door. I listened and took notes while she attempted fruitlessly to calm his wife. The things Mary said made little sense, but fit into the, parent, the pattern I was expecting. Though I could not see her, I could tell from her voice that she was crying, and more often than not, her objections of speaking to me centered around an incoherent diatribe on her dreams, her nightmares. Terence apologized profusely when he ceased the exercise, and I did my best to take it in stride. Recall that I wasn't a reporter in search of a story, but merely a curious young man in search of information. Besides, I thought at the time I could perhaps find another, similar case if I put my mind and resources to it. Mary E. was a systems operator for a small Chicago-based bulletin board system in 1992, when she first encountered JPEG and changed her life forever. She and Terrence had been married only five months. Mary is one of, the, uh, one of an estimated 400 people who saw the image when it was posted as a hyperlink on the VBS. Though she is the only one who had spoken openly about the experience. The rest have remained anonymous, or are perhaps dead. In 2005, I was only in 10th grade. Smile.jpg was first brought to my attention by my gr- begrudging interest in web-based phenomena. Mary was most often cited was the most often cited victim of what is sometimes referred to as smile.dog, the being smile.jpg is reputed to display. What caught my interest, other than the obvious macabre elements of the cyber legend and my proclivity towards such things, was the sheer lack of information, usually to the point that people didn't believe it even exists, other than a rumor or a horror. A hoax. It was a unique It was unique because, though the entire phenomenon centers on a picture file, that file is nowhere to be found on the internet. Certainly many photos manipulated to resemble it litter the web, showing with the most frequency on sites such as the imageboard 4chan, particularly on the X-focused fo- paranormal subboard. It is suspected that these are fakes because they do not have the effect of the true smile.jpg is believed to have, namely sudden-onset temporal lobe epilepsy and acute anxiety. This reaction in the viewer is one of the reasons why the phantom-like Smile.jpg is rewarded with such disdain, since it is patently absurd, though depending on whom you ask, the reluctance to acknowledge Smile.jpg's existence might be just as much as out of fear as it is of disbelief. Neither smile.jpg or smile.dog is smi- is mentioned anywhere on Wikipedia, though the website features articles for such other, perhaps more scandalous, shock sites, just as gotsee hello.jpg, or Two Girls One cup. Any attempt to create a page pertaining to smile.jpg is summarily deleted by any of the encyclopedia's many admins. Encounters with Smile.jpg are the stuff of internet legend. Mary E.'s story is not unique. There are unified rumors of Smile.jpg showing up in the early days of Usenet, and even one persistent tale that in 2002, a hacker flooded the forms of humor and satire website called something awful, with a deluge of Smile.dog pictures, rendering almost... All of the form's users at the time epileptic. It is also said that in the mid to late nineties that smile.jpg circulated on newsnet and as an attachment of the chain email with the subject like Smile! God loves you. Yet despite the huge exposure these stunts would generate, there are few people who admit to having experienced any of them and no trace of the file or any link has been discovered. Those who claim to have seen Smile.jpg often weakly joke that they were far too busy to save a copy of the picture to their hard drive. However, all alleged victims offer the same description of the photo. A dog-like creature, usually described as appearing similar to a Siberian husky, illuminated by the flash of a camera, sits in a dim dim room. The only background detail visible being a human hand extending from the darkness near the left of the side of the frame. The hand is empty but is usually described as beckoning. Of course, most attention is given to the dogs, or dog-like creature, as some victims are certain that, more certain than others about what they claim to have seen. The muscle of the beast is reputedly split in a wide grin, revealing two rows of very white, very straight, very sharp, and very human-like teeth. This is, of course... Not a description given immediately after the viewing of the picture, but rather a recollection of the victims, who claim to have seen the picture endlessly repeating, repeated in their mind's eye during the time they are, in reality, having epileptic fits. These fits are reported to continue indeterminately, often while the victim sleeps, resulting in very vivid and disturbing nightmares. They can be treated with medication, though in some cases it is more effective than others, Mary E. I assumed, was not on effective medication. That is why, after my visit to her apartment in 2007, I sent out feelers to several folklore and urban legend-oriented websites, news groups, and mailing lists, hoping to find the name of this hoping to find the name of a supposed victim of smile.jpg, who felt more interested in talking about his experience. For a time, nothing happened and at at length I forgot completely about my pursuits. Since I had begun my freshman year of college and was quite busy, Mary contacted me via email, however, near the beginning of 2008. Dear Mr. L, I am incredibly sorry about my behavior last summer when you came to interview me. I hope you understand that it is not a fault of yours, but rather my own problems that led me to act out as I did. I realized that I could have handled the situation more delicately however i hope you forgive me at the time i was afraid you see for 15 years i had been haunted by smile.jpeg smile.dog comes to me in my sleep every night i know that sounds silly but it is true there is an effable quality about my dreams my nightmares that makes them completely unlike any dream i've ever had i do not move and do not speak. I simply look around, and the only thing ahead of me is the scene from that horrible picture. I see the beckoning hand. I see smile.jpg. It talks to me. I thought for a long time about my options. I could show it to a stranger, a co worker. I could even show it to Terrence. As much as the idea disgusted me, but what would happen to them? And if smile.dog kept its word, I could sleep. Yet if it lied, what would I do? Who knew was I, who was I to say something worse would not come for me if the creature asked? So I did nothing for 15 years, though so I did nothing for 15 years, though I kept the diskette hidden amongst my things. Every night for 15 years, Smile.Dog dog has come to me in my sleep and demanded that I spread the word. For 15 years I have stood strong, though there have been hard times. Many of my fellow victims on the BBS board where I first encountered smile.jpg stopped posting. I heard some of them committed suicide. Others remained completely silent, simply disappearing off the face of the web. They are the ones I worry about the most. I sincerely hope you forgive me, Mr. L. But last summer, when you contacted me and my husband about the interview, I was near the breaking point. I did not care if smile.dog was lying or not. I wanted it to end. You were a stranger someone I had no connection with, and I thought I would, feel, I would not feel sorrow when you took the diskette as part of your research and sealed your fate. Before you arrived, I realized what I was doing. I was plotting to ruin your life. I could not stand the thought, and in fact, I still cannot. I am ashamed, Mr. L. And I hope that this warning will dissuade you from further investigation of Smile.jpg. You may in time encounter someone who is, if not weaker than I, then wholly more depraved, someone who will not hesitate to follow Smile Dot Dog's orders. Stop while you are still whole. Sincerely, Mary E. Terrence contacted me later that month with the news that his wife had killed herself. While cleaning up various things she left behind, closing email accounts and the like, he happened upon the above message. He was a man in shambles. He wept As he told me to listen to his wife's advice, he found the diskette, he revealed, and burned it until it was nothing but a stinking pile of black plastic. The part that most disturbed him, however, was how the diskette had hissed in it as it melted. It was like some sort of animal, he said. I will admit that I was a little uncertain about how to respond to this. At first, I thought perhaps it was a joke with a couple belatedly playing with the situation in order to get a rise out of me. But a quick check of several Chicago newspaper online obituaries, however, proved that Mary E. was indeed dead. There was, of course, no mention of suicide in the article. I decided that, at least at a time, I would not further pursue the subject of Smile.jpg, especially since I had finals coming up at the end of May but the world has odd ways of testing up. Almost a full year later, I returned from my disastrous interview with Mary E. I received another email. Hello. I found your email address through a mailing list. Your profile said you were interested in Smile Dog. I've seen it, and it is not as bad as everyone says. I have sent it to you here, just spreading the word. Smiley face. The final line chilled me to the bone. According to my email client, there was one file attachment called naturally smile.jpg. I considered downloading it for some time. It was most likely a fake, I imagined. And even if it weren't. I was near wholly convinced of Smile.jpeg's peculiar power. Mary E's account had shaken me, yes. And she had probably mentally and she was probably mentally unbalanced anyway. After all, how could a single image do what smile.jpg was said to accomplish? What sort of creature What sort of creature could break one's mind with the power of the eye? And if such things were particularly absurd and if such things were patently absurd, then why did the legend exist at all? If I download the image, if I look at it, and if Mary turned out to be correct, If smile.dog came to me in my dreams, demanding I spread the word, what do I do? Would I live my life as Mary had, fighting against the urge to give in until I died? Or would I simply spread the word, eager to be put the rest? And if I chose the latter route, how could I do it? Whom would I burden it, in turn? If I went through with my earlier intention to write a short article about smile.jpg, I decided... I could attach it as evidence. And anyone who read the article, anyone who took interest, would be affected. And then even assuming the smile.jpg attached to the email was genuine, would I be would I be able to save myself in that manner? Original author unknown. And then here's a picture of smile.jpg. Uh-huh. So that was Smile.jpg. What did you guys think?
1: That was uh, definitely something. They mentioned two girls, one cup.
0: They also mentioned 4chan. Ooh, 4chan. Oh, God.
1: Oh, my God, you guys. What's
0: yeah. that reaction video where it's just like this guy, he's like in a talk show and he just yells out,
2: 4chan! Even though 4chan's not even close to the normal
0: No, that's 8chan.
2: No.
1: Walter, we don't want to know about whatever weird porn site you discovered in the past, like, two weeks.
0: Carry Um, on. Speaking of weird porn, Bobby, it's your turn. (laughs) So Bobby's going to be kind of our little filler boy this time around, where he's going to be doing some short horror stories because someone didn't do his homework.
1: Oh, they had a really rough week at work, and we're not going to talk about it.
0: It's okay, Bobby. It's okay. All right. So, what's your first scary story?
1: Hold on, because uh, evidently being out of the screen for too long backs me out. So, one second.
0: Mm. do do, 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 do,
1: This New Old House by Bad Out of Hell 821. We bought an old house, my boyfriend and I. He's in charge of the new construction, converting the kitchen into the master bedroom, for instance, while I'm on wallpaper removal duty. The previous owner papered every wall and ceiling... Removing it is brutal, but oddly satisfying. The best feeling is getting a long peel, similar to your skin when you're peeling from a sunburn. I don't know about you, but I kind of make a game of peeling. On the hunt for the longest piece before it rips, under a corner section of paper in every room is a person's name and a date. Curiosity got the best of me one night when I googled one uh, one of the names and discovered the person was actually a missing person. The missing person matching the date under the wallpaper. The next day, I made a list of all the names and dates. Sure enough, each name was for a missing person with dates to match. We notified the police, who naturally sent out the crime scene team. I overheard one tech say, Yep, it's human. Human? What's human? Ma'am, where's the material you removed from the walls already? This isn't wallpaper you're you're removing.
0: Jesus fuck. (laughs) Oh my god. My god. What the fuck?
2: So, Walter, you want to go with yours now? Uh, Sure. Sure. Uh, Much like Alex, I went with a creepypasta legend. This is Jeff the Killer. Excerpt from a local newspaper. Ominous unknown killer is still at large. After weeks of unexplained murders, the ominous unknown killer is still on the rise. After little evidence has been found, a young boy states that he survived one of the killer's attacks and bravely tells his story. I had a bad dream. I woke up in the middle of the night, says the boy. I saw that, for some reason, the window was open, even though I remember it being closed before I went to bed. I got up and shut it once more. Afterwards, I simply crawled under my covers and tried to get back to sleep. That's when I had a strange feeling, like someone was watching me. I looked up and nearly jumped out of my bed. There, in the little ray of light illuminating from between my curtains, were a pair of two eyes. These weren't regular eyes. They were dark, ominous eyes. They were bordered in black, just plain out terrified me. That's when I saw his mouth, a long, horrendous smile that made every hair on my body stand up. The figure stood there, watching me. Finally, after what seemed like forever, he said it, a simple phrase, but said it in, in only a way a madman could speak. He said, go to sleep. I let out a scream. That's what sent him at me. He pulled a knife he pulled up a knife, aiming at my heart. He jumped on top of my bed. I fought back. I kicked, I punched, I rolled around trying to knock him off me. That's when my dad busted in. The man threw the knife. It went into my dad's shoulders. The man probably would have finished him off if one of the neighbors had alerted the police. They drove into the parking lot and ran towards the door. The man turned and ran down the hallway. I heard a smash, like glass breaking. As I came out of my room, I saw the window that was pointing towards the back of my house was broken. I looked out to see him vanish into the distance. I can tell you one thing. I will never forget that face. Those cold, evil eyes. And that psychotic smile. They will never leave my head. Police are still on the look for this man. If you see anyone that fits the description in this story, please contact your local police department. Jeff and his family had just moved to a new neighborhood his dad had gotten a promotion at work and they thought it would be best to live in one of those fancy neighborhoods jeff and his brother lou couldn't complain though a new better house who was not to love as they were getting unpacked one of the neighbors came by hello she said i'm barbara i live across the street from you well i just wanted to introduce myself and to introduce my son She turns around and calls her son over. Billy, these are new neighbors. Billy said hi and ran back to play in his yard. Well, Jeff's mom said, I'm Margaret. This is my husband, Peter, and my two sons, Jeff and Lou. They each introduced themselves, and then Barbara invited them to her son's birthday. Jeff and his brother were about to object when their mother said that they would love to. When Jeff and his family were done unpacking, Jeff went up to his mom. Mom, why would you invite us to some kid's party? If you haven't noticed, I'm not some dumb kid. Jeff, said his mother, we just moved here. We should show that we want to spend time with our neighbors. Now we're going to that party, and that's final. Jeff started to talk but stopped himself, knowing that he couldn't do anything. Whenever his mom had said something, it was final. He walked up to his room and plopped down on his bed. He sat there looking at his ceiling when suddenly he got a weird feeling. Not so much pain, but a weird feeling. He dismissed it as just some random feeling. He heard his mother call him down to get the rest of his stuff, and he walked down to get it. The next day, Jeff walked downstairs to get breakfast and got ready for school. As he sat there eating breakfast, he once again got that feeling. This time it was stronger. It gave him a slight tugging pain, but but he once again dismissed it. As he and Lou finished breakfast, they walked down to the bus stop. They sat there waiting for the bus, and then all of a sudden... Some kid on a skateboard jumped over them only inches above their laps. They both jumped backwards in surprise. Hey, what the hell? The kid landed and turned back to them. He kicked his skateboard up and caught it with his hands. The kid seemed to be about 12, one year younger than Jeff. He wears an Aeropostale shirt and ripped blue jeans. Well, well, well. Looks like we got some new meat. Suddenly, two other kids appeared. One was super skinny. The other was huge. Well, since you're new here, I'd like to introduce myself. Over there is Keith. Jeff and Lou looked over to the skinny kid. He had a dopey face that you would expect a sidekick to have. And he's Troy. They looked over at the fat kid. Talk about a tub of lard. This kid looked like he hadn't exercised since he was crawling. And I, said the first kid, I'm Randy. Now, for all the kids in the neighborhood, there is a small price for bus fare, if you catch my drift. Lou stood up, ready to punch the lights out of the, the kid's eyes. When one of his friends pulled a knife on him, Tisk tisk tisk. I had hoped you would be more cooperative, but it seems we must do this the hard way. The kid walked up to Lou and took his wallet out of his pocket. Jeff got that feeling again. Now it was truly strong, a burning sensation. He stood up, but Lou gestured him to sit down. Jeff ignored him and walked up to the kid. Listen to you here, you little punk. Give my bro's wallet back or else. Randy put the wallet in his pocket and pulled out his own knife. Oh, and, and what will you do? Just as he finished the sentence, Jeff popped the kid in the nose. As Randy reached for his face, Jeff grabbed the kid's wrist and broke it. Randy screamed and Jeff grabbed the knife from his hand. Troy and Keith rushed, but Jeff was too quick. He threw Randy to the ground. Keith lashed out at him but Jeff ducked and stabbed him in the arm. Keith dropped his knife and fell to the ground, screaming. Troy rushed him, too, but Jeff didn't even need the knife. He punched Troy straight in the stomach, and Troy went down. As he fell, he puked all over. Lou could do nothing but look in amazement. Jeff, how'd you, was all he said. They knew the bus was coming. They knew they'd be blamed for the whole thing. So they started running as fast as they could. As they ran, they looked back and saw the bus driver rushing to Randy and the others. As Jeff and Lou made it to school, they didn't dare tell what happened. All they did was sit and listen. Lou just thought of that as his brother beating up a few kids, but Jeff knew it was more. It was something scary. As he got that feeling, he felt how powerful it was. The urge to just hurt someone. He didn't like how it sounded, but he couldn't help feeling happy. He felt that strange feeling go away and stay away for the entire day of school. Even as he walked home, due to the whole thing near the bus stop and how he probably wouldn't be taking the bus anymore. He felt happy. His parents asked him how his day was and he said in a somewhat ominous voice, it was a wonderful day. Next morning, he heard a knock at the front door. He walked down to find two police officers at the door. His mother looking back at them with an angry look. Jeff, these officers tell me that you attacked three kids, that it wasn't regular fighting, and that they were stabbed. Stabbed, son! Jeff's gaze fell to the floor, showing his mother that it was true. Mom, they were the ones who pulled the knives on me and Lou. Son, said one of the cops. We found three kids, two stabbed, one having a bruise on his stomach. And we have witnesses proving that you fled the scene. Now what does that tell us? Jeff knew it was no use. He could say him and Lou had been attacked, but then there was no proof and it was not them who attacked first. They couldn't say that they were, weren't fleeing because truth be told they were. So Jeff couldn't defend himself or Lou. Son, call down your brother. Jeff couldn't do it since he, since it was he who beat up the kid, sir. it, It was me. I was the one who beat up the kids. Lou tried to hold me back, but he couldn't stop me. The cop, looked at his partner, and they both nod. Well, kid, looks like a year in juvie. Wait, says Lou. They all looked up to see him holding a knife. The officers pulled their their guns and locked them on Lou. It was me. I beat up those little punks. Have the marks to prove it. He lifted up his sleeves to reveal cuts and bruises as if he was in a struggle. Son, just put the knife down, said the officer. Lou held up the knife and dropped it to the ground. He put his hands up and walked over to the cops. No, Lou, it was me. I did it. Jeff had tears running down his face. <clears> huh, <throat> oh, poor bro, trying to take the blame for what I did. Well, take me away. The police led Lou out to the patrol car. Lou, tell them it was me. Tell them I beat up those kids. Jeff's mother put her hand on it, her hands on his shoulders. Jeff, please, you don't have to lie. We know it's Lou. You can stop. Jeff watched helplessly as the cop car speeds off with Lou inside. A few minutes later, Jeff's dad pulls into the driveway, seeing Jeff's face and knowing something was wrong. Son, son, what is it? Jeff couldn't answer. His vocal cords were strained from crying. Instead, Jeff's mother walked his father inside to break the bad news to him as Jeff wept in the driveway. After an hour or so, Jeff walked back into the house. Seeing that his parents were... Shocked, sad, and disappointed, he couldn't look at them. He couldn't see how they thought of Lou when it was his fault. He just went to sleep, trying to get the whole thing off his mind. Two days went by with no word from Lou at JDC. No friends to hang out with, nothing but sadness and guilt. That is until Saturday when Jeff is woken up by his mother with a happy, sunshiny face. Jeff, it's the day, she said as she opened up the curtains and let... And let light flood into his room. What? What's today? As Jeff, as he stares awake, why it's Billy's party. He was now fully awake. Mom, you're joking, right? You don't expect me to go to some kid's party after there was a long pause. Jeff, we both know what happened. I think this party could be just could be the thing that brightens up the past days. Now get dressed. Jeff's mother walked out of the room and downstairs to get ready herself. He fought himself to get up. He picked out a random shirt and a pair of jeans and walked downstairs. He saw his mother and father all dressed up. His mother in a dress and his father in a suit. He thought, why would they ever wear such fancy clothes to a kid's party? Son, is that all you're going to wear? Said Jeff's mom. Better than wearing too much, he said. His mother pushed down the feeling to yell at him and hit it with a smile. Now, Jeff, we may be overdressed. But this is how you go if you want to make an impression, said his father. Jeff grunted and went back up to his room. I don't have any fancy clothes, he yelled downstairs. Just pick out something, called his mother. He looked around in a closet for what he would call fancy. He found a pair of black dress pants he had for special occasions and an undershirt. He couldn't find a shirt to go with it, though. He looked around and found only a striped and patterned shirts. None of which go with the dress pants. Finally he picked out a white hoodie and put it on. You're wearing that, they both said. His mother looked at her watch. Oh no time to go change, let's just go. She said as as she herded Jeff and his father out the door. They crossed the street over to Barbara and Billy's house. They knocked on the door and and at it appeared it and at it appeared that Barbara just like his was way overdressed. As they walked inside, all Jeff could see were adults. No kids. The kids are out in the yard, Jeff. How about you go and meet some of them, said Barbara. Jeff walked outside to a yard full of kids. They were running around in weird cowboy costumes and shouted, shout, shooting at each other with plastic guns. He might as well be standing in a Toys R Us. Suddenly, a kid came up to him and handed him a toy gun and hat. Hey, want to play, he said. Ah, no, kid, I'm way too old for this stuff. The kid looked at him with the weird puppy dog face. Wheeze, said the kid. Fine, said Jeff. put on the hat and started to pretend shoot at the kids. At first he thought it was totally ridiculous, but then he started to actually have fun. It might not have been super cool, but it was the first time he had done something that took his mind off Lou. So he played with the kids for a while until he heard a noise, a weird rolling noise. Then it hit him. Randy, Troy, and Keith all jumped over the fence on their skateboards. Jeff dropped the fake gun and ripped the hat off. Randy looked at Jeff with a burning hatred. Hello, Jeff, is it? He said. We have some unfinished business. Jeff saw his bruised nose. I think we're even. I beat the crap out of you and you got my brother sent to JDC. Randy got an angry look in his eyes. Oh, no, I don't go for even. I go for winning. You may have kicked our asses that one day, but not today. As he said that, Randy rushed at Jeff. They both fell to the ground. Randy punched Jeff in the nose, and Jeff grabbed him by the ears and headbutted him. Jeff pushed Randy off of him, and they both rose to their feet. Kids were screaming, and parents were running out of the house. Troy and Keith both pulled guns out of their pockets. No one interrupts or guts will fly, they said. Randy pulled a, a knife on Jeff and stabbed it into his shoulder. Jeff screamed and fell to his knees. Randy started kicking him in the face. After three kicks, Jeff grabs his foot and twists it. it, twists it, causing Randy to fall to the ground. Jeff stood up and walked towards the back door. Troy grabbed him. Need some help? He picks Jeff up by the back of the collar and throws him through the patio door. As Jeff tries to stand, he is kicked to the ground. Randy repeatedly starts kicking Jeff until he starts to cough up blood. Come on, Jeff. Fight me. He picks up Jeff throws him into the kitchen. Randy sees a bottle of vodka on the counter and smashes the glass over Jeff's head. Fight! He throws Jeff back into the living room. Come on, Jeff, look at me! Jeff glances up, his face riddled with blood. I was the one who got your brother sent to JDC. Now you're just going to sit here and let him rot there for a whole year? You should be ashamed. Jeff starts to get up. Oh, finally, you stand and fight. Jeff is now to his feet. Blood and vodka on his face. Once again, he gets that strange feeling. The one which he hasn't felt for a while. Finally, he's up, says Randy as he runs at Jeff. That's when it happens. Something inside Jeff snaps. His psyche is destroyed. All rational thinking is gone. All he can do is kill. He grabs Randy and pile drives him into the ground. He gets on top of him and punches him straight in the heart. The punch causes Randy's heart to stop. As Randy gasps for breath, Jeff hammers down on him, punch after punch. Blood gushes from Randy's body until he takes one final breath and dies. Everyone is looking at Jeff now, the parents, the crying kids, even Troy and Keith. Even though they easily break from their gaze and point their guns at Jeff, Jeff sees the guns trained on him and runs for the stairs. As he runs, Troy and Keith let out fire on him, each shot missing. Jeff runs up the stairs. He hears Troy and Keith follow up behind as they let out their final rounds of bullets. Jeff ducks into the bathroom. He grabs the towel rack, rips it off the wall. Troy and Keith race in, knives ready. Troy swings his knife at Jeff, who backs away, and he bangs the towel into Troy's face. Troy goes down hard. Now all that's left is Keith. He is more agile than Troy, though, and ducks when Jeff swings the towel rack. He dropped the knife and grabbed Jeff by the neck. He pushed him into a wall. A thing of bleach fell down on top of him from the top shelf. It burnt both of them. And they both started to scream. Jeff wiped his eyes as best he could. He pulled back the towel rack and swung it straight into Keith's head. As he lay there, bleeding to death, he let out an ominous smile. What's so funny? asked Jeff. Keith pulled out a lighter and switched it on. What's funny, he said, is that you're covered in bleach and alcohol. Jeff's eyes widened as Keith threw the lighter at him. As soon as the flames made contact with him, the flames ignited the alcohol and the vodka. While the alcohol burned him, the bleach bleached his skin. Jeff let, a ter- let out a terrible screech as he caught fire. He tried to roll out the fire, but it was no use. The alcohol had made him a walking inferno. He ran down the hall and fell down the stairs. Everybody started screaming as they saw Jeff. Now a man on fire. Dropped, dropped to the ground, nearly dead. The last thing Jeff saw was his mother and the other parents trying to extinguish the flame. That's when he passed out. When Jeff woke, he had a cast wrapped around his face. He couldn't see anything, but he felt a cast on his shoulder and stitches all over his body. He tried to stand up, but he realized that there was some tube in his arm, and when he tried to get up, it fell out, and a nurse rushed in. I don't think you can get out of bed just yet, she said, as she put him back in his bed and reinserted the tube. Jeff sat there with no vision, no idea what... ...of what his surroundings were. Finally, after hours, he heard his mother. Honey, are you okay, she asked. Jeff couldn't answer, though... Jeff couldn't answer, though his face was covered, and he was unable to speak. Oh, honey, I have great news. After all the witnesses told the police that Randy confessed of trying to attack you, they decided to let Lou go. This made Jeff almost bolt up, stopping halfway, remembering the tube coming out of his arm. He'll be out by tomorrow, and then you two will be able to be together again. Jeff's mother hugs Jeff and says her goodbyes. The next couple of weeks were those where Jeff was visited by his family. Then came the day where his bandages were to be removed. His family members were all there to see it, what he would look like. As the doctors unwrapped the bandages from Jeff's face, everyone was on the edge of their seats. They waited until the last bandage holding... The cover over his face was almost removed. Let's hope for the best, said the doctors. He quickly pulls the cloth, letting the rest fall from Jeff's face. Jeff's mother screams at the sight of his face. Lou and Jeff's dad stare awestruck at his face. What What happened to my face, Jeff said. He rushed out of bed and ran to the bathroom. He looked in the mirror and saw the cause of distress. His face. it It's horrible. His lips were burnt to a deep shade of red. His face was turned into a pure white color, and his hair singed from brown to black. He slowly put his hands to his face. It had a sort of leathery feel to it now. He looked back at his family and, and then back at the mirror. Jeff, said Lou, it's not that bad. Not that bad, said Jeff. It's perfect. His family was equally surprised. Jeff started laughing uncontrollably, his parents noticed that his left eye and hand were twitching. Uh, Jeff, are you okay? Okay. I've never felt more happy. Ha 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 Look at me! This face goes perfectly with me. He couldn't stop laughing. He stroked his face, feeling it, looking at it in the mirror. What caused this? Well, you may recall that when Jeff was fighting Randy, something in his mind, his sanity snapped. Now he was left as a crazy killing machine. That his parents didn't know. Doctor, said Jeff's mom, is my son all right? You know, in the head? Oh, yes. This behavior is typical for patients that have taken a very large amount of painkillers. If his behavior doesn't change in a few weeks, bring him back here and we'll give him a psychological test. Oh, thank you, doctor. Jeff's mother went over to Jeff. Jeff, sweetie, it's time to go. Jeff looks away from the mirror. His face still formed a crazy smile. Okay, mommy. (laughs) his mother took him by the shoulder and took him to get his clothes this is what came in said the lady at the desk Jeff's mom looked down to see the black dress pants and the white hoodie her son wore now they were clean of blood and now stitched together Jeff's mother led him to his room and made him put his clothes on then they left not knowing that this was the final day of their life Later that night, Jeff's mother woke to a sound coming from the bathroom. It sounded as if someone was crying. She slowly walked over to see what it was. When she looked in the bathroom, she saw a horrendous sight. Jeff had taken a knife and carved a smile into his cheek. Jeff, what are you doing? asked his mother. Jeff looked over to his mother. I couldn't keep I couldn't keep smiling, Mommy. It hurt after a while. Now I can smile forever. Jeff's mother noticed his eyes rude ringed in black jeff your eyes his eyes were seemingly never closing i couldn't see my face i got tired and my eyes started to close i burnt out the eyelids so i could forever see myself my new face jeff's mother started to slowly back away seeing that her son was going insane what's wrong mommy aren't i beautiful yes son she said yes you are let me go get your daddy so he can see your face She ran into the room and shook Jeff's dad from his sleep. Honey, get the gun. We. She stopped as she saw Jeff in the doorway holding a knife. Mommy, you lied. That's the last thing they hear as Jeff rushes them with the knife, gutting the both of them. His brother Lou woke up, startled by some noise. He didn't hear anything else, so he just shut his eyes and tried to go back to sleep. As he was on the border of slumber, he got the strangest feeling that someone was watching him. He looked up before Jeff's hand covered his mouth. He slowly raised the knife, ready to plunge it into Lou. Lou thrashed here and there, trying to escape Jeff's grip. Shh, Jeff said, just go to sleep. Jeff the Killer by Sessour.
0: Now, I've obviously, you know, read and heard this story before. I think it was our first, uh... Halloween special, where I said that I had the concept for an X-Files type TV show called The Pasta Files, where it would be like them exploring these different creepy pastas. And Jeff the Killer was supposed to be the first episode of that, uh, recounting the events and kind of making the twist of one of the main characters being Lou from this story who actually lived from this event. But um, listening to it now, it's nothing against you, Walter, but this story's kind of cringe. It's it' it
2: like it's creepy. It
0: it becomes like a Batman origin
2: story like at the end. It's really poorly written, especially like when you're reading it <laughs> grammatically. It's awful.
0: Oh god, and then the cop is like, uh Oh, I guess it's a year in juvie for you.
1: A <laughs> <laughs> CAB, but Bobby? So there's a there's a portion toward the middle. Uh huh. I just have to ask, like, did, did you read this creepy pasta before trying to write that Fairly Odd Parents fanfic? Oh, <laughs> <you. laughs>
0: we gotta read that at one of our Halloween specials one year. Get it done.
1: <laughs> Turn it into a screenplay. Somebody was on it.
0: Timmy, I have a bullet. His name is uh, its name is Philip. What's the bad news? It's a girl bullet God damn it. <laughs> all right, Bobby, why don't you read us a short scary story?
1: This is Cartons by Dark Alligator. He woke to the huge insect creature swimming over his bed and screwed his lungs out. They hastily left the room and he stayed up all night, shaking and wondering if it had been a dream. The next morning there was a tap on the door. Gathering his courage, he opened it to see one of them gently place a plate filled with a fried breakfast on the floor, then retreat to a safe distance. Bewildered, he accepted the gift. The creatures chittered excitedly. This happened every day for weeks. At first, he was worried that they were fattening him up. But after a particularly greasy breakfast left him clutching his chest from heartburn, they were, they were replaced with fresh fruit. As well as cooking, they poured hot, steamy baths for him and even tucked him in when he went to bed. It was bizarre. One night, he awoke to gunshots and screaming. He raced downstairs to find a decapitated burglar being devoured by the insects. He was sickened, but disposed of the remains as best as he could. He knew they had just been protecting him. One morning, the creatures wouldn't let him leave his room. He lay down, confused, but trusting as they hushered him back into bed. Whatever their motives, they weren't going to hurt him. Hours later, a burning pain spread throughout his body. It was like his stomach was filled with razor wire. The insects chittered as he spasmed and moaned. It was only when he felt a terrible squirming feeling beneath his skin that he realized the insects hadn't been protecting him. They'd been protecting their young.
0: So, I guess that's what it's like living in a youth
2: hostel? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: that
3: was, that was a nice little scary
1: story. That, that,
2: that's very fun. Alright, the first one was, uh, the first one you did, that was, uh, Messed up. Oh, yeah, the wallpaper one?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the wallpaper
2: I mean, everybody wallpaper.
1: knows that uh, human was... flesh makes the best wallpaper.
4: Right.
0: So, why don't we chug along and read the next one? Who's got the next one? Well, I'm out of stories. Walter? Bobby?
1: I, I got nothing.
0: Shit. Well, is this the end of our Halloween special? <laughs> Tune in next week to find out. immediately um well if we're out of story boys i guess we got to turn to some of our friends that's right boys halloween special 2 capacity to geek is gonna be guest stories i don't know where i was going with this but yes <laughs> we've uh, called upon some of our friends to submit some ooky spooky stories for you guys uh so why don't we get the first one out of out of the way? This is from a dear friend of mine from college, uh, Kennedy. They uh, have all their plugs at the end, but they have a podcast called Flicks Before Dicks Podcast where they talk about rom-coms and relationship stuff. Um, tune in soon because I feel like we have a crossover coming up soon with Flicks Before Dicks, Capacity to Geek, you know, Capacity to Dick. That did not go the way I wanted it to.
1: (laughs) Just, uh, do whatever you do. Don't make that the title of the episode.
0: Don't make that the title of the episode. Um, but also, yes, Kennedy, we'd love to do a crossover with you. Uh, you can pick the movie to do, but I'll let you know, we already did Mamma Mia 1 and 2. So, uh, here, without further ado, is Kennedy with Cat People. Hi,
5: my name is Kennedy. And I am reading Cat Person by Kristen Raupinian. Margot met Robert on a Wednesday night towards the end of her fall semester. She was working behind the concession stand at an artsy movie theater downtown when he came in and bought a large popcorn and a box of red vines. That's an unusual choice, she said. I don't really think I've ever sold a box of red vines before. Flirting with her customers was a bad habit she picked up when she worked at a, as a barista, and it helped with tips. She didn't earn tips at a movie theater, but the job was boring otherwise, and she did think Robert was cute. Not so cute that she would have, say, gone up to him at a party, but cute enough that she could have drummed up an imaginary crush on him if he sat across from her during a dull class. Though she was pretty, sh- though she was pretty sure he was out of college, in his mid-twenties at least, He was tall, but she liked. She could see an edge of a tattoo peeking out from underneath the rolled-up sleeve of his shirt, but he was on the heavy side. His beard was a little too long, his shoulders slumped forward slightly, as though he was protecting something. Robert did not pick up on her flirtation, or if he did, he showed it only by stepping back as though to make her lean toward him. Try a little harder. Well, he said, okay then, he pocketed his change. But the next week, he came to the movie theater again and bought another box of red vines. You're getting better at your job, he told her. You managed not to insult me this time. She shrugged. I'm up for a promotion. So. After the movie, he came back to her. Concession stand, girl. Give me your phone number, he said. And surprising herself, she did. From the small exchange about red vines over the next several weeks, they built up an elaborate scaffolding of jokes via text. Riffs that unfolded and shifted so quickly that she sometimes had a hard time keeping up. He was very clever, and she found that she had to work to impress him. Soon she noticed that when she texted him, he usually texted her right back away. But if she took more than a few hours to respond, his next message would always be short and wouldn't include a question. So it was up to her to reinitiate the conversation, which she always did. A few times she got distracted for a day or so and wondered if the exchange would die out altogether. But then she'd think of something funny to tell him, or she'd see a picture on the internet that was relevant to their conversation, and they started up again. She still didn't know much about him because they never talked about anything personal. But when they landed two or three good jokes in a row, there was kind of an exhilaration to it, as if they were dancing. Then, One night during a reading period, she was complaining about how all the dining halls were closed and that there was no food in her room because her roommate had raided her care package. And he offered to buy her some red vines to sustain her. At first, she deflected this with another joke. Because she really did have to study, but he said, No, I'm serious. Stop fooling around and come on. So she put on a jacket over her pajamas and met him at 7-Eleven. It was about 11 o'clock. He greeted her without ceremony as though he saw her every day and took her inside to choose some snacks. The store didn't have red vines, so he bought her a cherry Coke slushie and a bag of Doritos and a novelty lighter shaped like a frog with a cigarette in its mouth. Thank you for my present, she said when they were back outside. Robert was wearing a fur hat that came down over his ears in a thick old-fashioned down jacket. She thought it was a good look for him, if a little dorky. The hat had heightened his lumberjack aura, and the heavy coat hid his belly and the slightly sad lump of his shoulders. "'You're welcome, concession stand girl,' he said, though, of course, he knew her name by then. She thought he was going to go in for a kiss and prepared to duck and offered him her cheek. But instead of kissing her on the mouth, he took her by the arm and kissed her gently on the forehead, as though she were something precious. "'Study hard, sweetheart,' he said. "'I will see you soon.' On her walk back to the dorm, she was filled with a sparkly lightness that she recognized as a sign of an insipid crush. When she was home over the break, they texted nearly nonstop. Not only jokes, but little updates about their days. They started saying good night and good morning, and when she asked him a question and he didn't respond right away, she felt a jab of anxious yearning. She learned that Robert had two cats named Moo and Jan, and together they invented a complicated scenario in which her childhood cat, Pita, would send flirtatious texts to Jan. But whenever Pita talked to Moo, she was cold and formal, because she was jealous of Moo's relationship with Jan. Why are you texting all the time? Margot's stepdad asked her at dinner. Are you having an affair with someone? Yes, Margot said. His name is Robert, and I met him at the movie theater. We're in love, and we're probably going to get married. Hmm," our stepdad said. "Tell him we have some questions for him. My parents were asking about you." Margot texted, and Robert sent her back a smiley face emoji, whose eyes were hearts. When Margot returned to campus, she was eager to see Robert again, but he turned out to be surprisingly hard to pin down. Sorry, busy week at work," he replied. "I promise I will see you soon." Margot didn't like this. It felt as if the dynamic had shifted out of her favor. And when eventually he did ask her to go to a movie, she agreed right away. The movie he wanted to see was playing at the theater where she worked, but she suggested that they go see it at the big multiplex just outside town instead. Students didn't go there very often because you needed to drive. Robert came to pick her up in a muddy white Civic with candy wrappers spilling out of the cup holders. On the drive, he was quieter than she expected, and he didn't look at her very much. Before five minutes had gone by, she became wildly uncomfortable. And as they got on the highway, it occurred to her that he could take her someplace and rape and murder her. She hardly knew anything about him, after all. Just as she thought this, he said, don't worry, I'm not going to murder you. And she wondered if the discomfort in the car was her fault, because she was acting jumping nervous. Like the kind of girl who thought she was going to get murdered every time she went on a date. It's okay. You can murder me if you want, she said. And he laughed and patted her knee. But he was still disconcertingly quiet, and all, the bubbling attempts at make, and all her bubbling attempts at making conversation bounced right off of him. At the theater, he made a joke to the cashier at the concession stand about red vines, which fell very flat in a way that embarrassed everyone involved, but Margot most of all. During the movie, he didn't hold her hand or put his arm around her, so by the time they were back in the parking lot, she was pretty sure he had changed his mind about liking her. She was wearing leggings and a sweatshirt, so that might have been the problem. When he got into the car, he said, Glad to see you dressed up for me, which she assumed was a joke. But maybe she had actually offended him by not seeming to take the date seriously enough or something. He was wearing khakis and a button down shirt. So do you want to get a drink? he asked. When they got back into the car, as if being polite were an obligation that had been imposed on him, it seemed obvious to Margot that he was expecting her to say no, and that when she did, they wouldn't talk again. That made her sad, not so much because she wanted to continue spending time with him, because she'd had high expectations for him over break, and it didn't seem fair that things had fallen apart so quickly. We could go get a drink, I guess, she said. If you want, he said. If you want was such an unpleasant response that she sat quietly in the car until he poked her leg and said what are you sulking about? I'm not sulking, she said. I'm just a little tired. I can take you home. No, I could use a drink after that movie. Even though I'd been playing at the mainstream theater, the film he chosen was a very depressing drama about the Holocaust. So, inappropriate for a first date. That when he suggested it, she said, are, are you serious? And he made some joke about how sorry he was that he misjudged her taste and that he could take her to a romantic comedy instead. But now when she said that about the movie he winced a little and a totally different interpretation of the night's events occurred to her, she wondered if perhaps he'd been trying to impress her by suggesting the Holocaust movie because he didn't understand that a Holocaust movie was the kind wrong kind of serious movie with which to impress the person who worked at an artsy movie theater, the type of person he probably assumed that she was. Maybe she thought, Her texting, L.O.R.E. serious, had hurt him, had intimidated him, and made him feel uncomfortable around her. The thought of this possible vulnerability touched her, and she felt kinder towards him than she had all night. When she asked him where she wanted to go for a drink, she named the place where she usually hung out. But he made a face and said that it was in the student ghetto, and that he'd take her somewhere better. They went to a bar she'd never been to, an underground speakeasy type of place with no sign announcing its presence. There was a line to get inside, and as they waited, she grew fidgety, trying to figure out what to tell him when she needed to tell him, but she couldn't. So when the bouncer asked to see her ID, she just handed it to him. The bouncer hardly even looked at it, and he just smirked and said, Yeah, no, and waved her to the side as he gestured to the next group of people in line. Robert had gone ahead of her, not noticing what was playing out behind him. Robert, she said quietly, but he didn't turn around. Finally, someone who had been paying attention. "'Tapped him on the shoulder and pointed to her, marooned on the sidewalk. "'She stood abashed as he came over to her. "'Sorry,' she said. "'This is so embarrassing. "'How old are you?' he demanded. "'I'm twenty,' she said. "'Oh, I thought you were older.' "'I told you I was a sophomore,' she said. "'Standing outside the bar, having been rejected in front of but everyone, "'was humiliating enough. "'But now Robert was looking at her as if she'd done something wrong.' But you did that. What do you call that? The gap year, he objected as though this were an argument that he could win. I don't know what to tell you. She said helplessly, I'm plenty. And then absurdly, she started to feel tears stingy in her eyes. Because somehow everything had been ruined and she couldn't understand why all of this was so hard. But when Robert saw her face crumpling, a kind of magic happened. All the tension drained out of his posture, he stood straight up and wrapped his bear-like arms around her. Oh, sweetheart, he said. Oh, honey. It's okay. It's all right. Please don't feel bad. She let herself be folded against him, and she was flooded with the same feeling she had outside the 711 that she was a delicate, precious thing he was afraid might break. He kissed her on the top of her head, and she laughed and wiped the tears away. I can't believe I'm crying because I didn't get into a bar, she said. You must think I'm such an idiot. But she knew he didn't think that from the way he was gazing at her. In his eyes, she could see how pretty she looked, smiling through her tears in the chalky glow of the street light with a few flakes of snow coming down. He kissed her. He kissed her then, on the lips, for real. He came for her in a kind of lunging motion and practically poured his tongue down her throat. It was a terrible kiss. Shockingly bad. Margo had trouble believing a grown man could be so bad at kissing. It seemed awful, yet somehow it gave her that tender feeling towards him again, the sense that even though he was older than her, she knew something he didn't. When he was done kissing her, she, he finally took her hand and led her to a different bar, where there were pool tables and pinball machines and sawdust on the floor, and no one was checking IDs at the door. In one of the booths, she saw the grad student who'd been her English TA her freshman year should I get you a vodka soda, asked Robert, which she thought was maybe supposed to be a joke about the kind of drink college girls like, though she'd never had a vodka soda. She actually was a little anxious about what to order. At places she went to, they only carded people at the bar, so the kids who were 21 or had a good fake ID usually bought pictures of PBR or Bud Light back to share with the others. She wasn't sure if those brands were ones that Robert would make fun of, so instead of specifying, she just said, I'll just have a beer. With the drinks in front of him and the kiss behind him, and also maybe because she had cried, Robert became much more relaxed, more like the witty person she knew through the text. As they talked, she became increasingly sure that what she interpreted as anger or dissatisfaction with her had in fact been nervousness, a fear that she wasn't having a good time. He kept coming back to her initial dismissal of the movie, making jokes that glanced off it, and watching her closely to see how she responded. He teased her about her highbrow taste and said how hard it was to impress her because of all the film classes she'd taken, even though he knew she'd only taken one summer class in film. He joked about how she and the other employees at the R.C. Theater probably sat around and made fun of all the people who went to the mainstream theater, where they didn't even serve wine or had some of the movies in IMAX 3D. Margot laughed along with the jokes he was making at the expense of, her, of this imaginary film snob person of her. Though nothing he said seemed quite fair, since she was the one who actually suggested the movie at the quality 16. Although now she realized maybe that had hurt Robert's feelings too. She thought it was clear that she just didn't want to go on a date where she worked, but maybe he'd taken it more personally than that. Maybe he suspected that she was ashamed to be seen with him, and she was starting to think that she understood him, how sensitive he was, how easily he could be wounded, and how that made her feel closer to him and also powerful, because once she knew how to hurt him, she also knew how he could be soothed. She asked him lots of questions about the movies he liked and spoke self-deprecating about the movies at the artsy theater that she found boring or incomprehensible. She told him about how her older co-workers intimidated her or and how sometimes she worried that she wasn't smart enough to form her own opinions on anything. The effect of this on him was palpable and immediate and she felt as if she were petting a large, skittish animal like a horse or a bear, skillfully coaxing it to eat from her hand. By her third beer, she was thinking about what it'd be like to have sex with Robert, probably because it would be like that bad kiss, clumsy and excessive, but imagining how excited he would be, how hungry and eager to impress her. She felt a twinge of desire pluck at her belly, as distinct and painful as the snap of an elastic band on her skin. When they finished the round of drinks, she said boldly, should we get out of here then? And he, briefly, he seemed hurt, as if he thought she was cutting the date short. But he took, but she took his hand and pulled him up, and the look on his face when, she realized, when he realized what she was saying, and the obedient way he trailed her out of the bar, gave her the elastic band snap again, as did Ollie the fact that his palm was slick beneath hers. Outside, she presented herself to him again for kissing, but to her surprise he only pecked her on the mouth "you're drunk" he said accusingly "no i'm not" she said though she was she pressed her body against his feeling tiny beside him and he let out a shuddering sigh as if he something were too bright and painful to look at and that was sexy too being made to feel like a kind of irresistible temptation "i'm taking you home lightweight" he said shepherding her to the car once they were inside, though, she leaned into him again, and after a while, by lightly pulling back to where he pushed his tongue too far down her throat, she was able to get him to kiss her in a softer way that she liked. And soon after that, she was straddling him, and she could feel the small log of his erection straining against his pants. Whenever it rolled beneath her weight, he let out these fluttery, high-pitched moans that she could feel were a little bit melodramatic, but then suddenly he pushed her off him and turned the key Making out in the front seat like a teenager, he said in mock disgust. Then he added, I'd have thought you were too old for that, now that you're twenty. She stuck her tongue out at him. Where do you want to go, then? Your place? Uh, that really won't work, because of my roommate. Oh, right, you live at the dorms, he said, as though that were something she should apologize for. Where do you live? She asked. I live in a house. Can I come over you can the house was in a pretty wooded neighborhood not too far from campus and had a string of cheerful white fairy lights across the doorway before he got out of the car he said darkly as a warning just so you know i have cats i know she said we texted about them remember at the front door he fumbled with his keys for what seemed like a ridiculously long time and swore under his breath she rubbed his back to try to keep the mood going but that seemed to fluster him even more so she stopped "'Well, this is my house,' he said flatly, pushing the door open. The house was a dimly lit and full of objects, which, all of which, as her eyes adjusted, resolving into familiarity, he had two large full bookcases, a shelf of vinyl records, a collection of board games, and a lot of art, or at least posters that had been hung in frames instead of being tackled or taped to the wall. "'I like it,' she said truthfully. And as she did, she identified the emotion she was feeling as relief. It occurred to her that she'd never gone to someone's house to have sex before, because she'd only dated guys her age. There had always been some element of sneaking around to avoid roommates. It was new and a little frightening to be completely on someone else's turf, and the fact that Robert's house gave evidence of having interests that she shared, if only in the broadest categories—art, games, books, music— struck her as a reassuring endorsement of her choice. As she thought this, she saw that Robert was watching her closely, observing her, th- the impression of the room had made. And as though fear wasn't quite ready to release its hold on her, she had the brief wild idea that maybe this was not a room at all, but a trap meant to lure her into the false belief that Robert was a normal person, a person like her when, in fact, all of the other rooms in the house were empty or full of horrors, like corpses or kidnap victims or chains. But then he was kissing her, throwing her bag and the coat on the couch, and ushering her into the bedroom, groping her ass and pawing at her chest, with the avid clumsiness of that first kiss. The bedroom wasn't empty, though. It was emptier than the living room. He didn't have a bed frame, just a mattress and a box spring on the floor. There was a bottle of whiskey on his dresser, and he took a swig from it, then handed it to her, and kneeled down and opened his laptop an action that confused her until she understood that he was putting on music. Margot sat on the bed while Robert took off his shirt and unbuckled his pants, pulling them down to his ankles before realizing that he was still wearing his shoes and bending over to untie them. Looking at that, so awkwardly bent, his thick belly soft and covered with hair, Margot recoiled, but the thought of what it would take to stop what she had said in motion was overwhelming. It would require an amount of tact and gentleness that she felt was impossible to summon. It wasn't that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but that insisting that they stop now after everything she'd done to push this forward would make her seem spoiled and capricious, as if she ordered something at a restaurant and then, once the food arrived, changed her mind and sent it back. She tried to bludgeon her resistance into submission by taking a sip of the whiskey, but when she when he fell on top of her with those huge sloppy kisses his hand moving mechanically across her breasts and down to her crotch, as if he were making some perverse sign of the cross, He began; she began to have trouble breathing and to feel as if she might be, not be able to go through with it at all. Wriggling out from under the weight of him and straddling him, help as it did closing her eyes and remembering him kissing her forehead at the Seven-Eleven. Eager by her progress, she pulled a shirt over her head. Robert reached and scooped her breast out of her bra, just so it jutted out half in and half out of the cup and rolled her nipple between his thumb and his forefinger. That was uncomfortable. So she leaned forward, pushing herself into his hand. He got the hint and tried to undo her bra, but he couldn't work the claps. His evident frustration reminiscent of his struggle with the keys until at last he said bossily, take the thing off, and she complied. The way that he looked at her was like an exaggerated version of the expression she seen on the many faces of all the guys she'd been naked with. Not that there were that many. Six in total. Robert made seven. He looked stunned and stupid with pleasure like a milk drunk baby. And she thought that maybe that this was what she liked most about sex. A guy revealed like that. Robert showed her more openness Robert showed her more openness Robert showed her more open need than any of the others, even though he was older, and must have been seen <clears throat> Robert showed her more open need than any of the others, even though he was older, and must have seen more breasts, more bodies than they had, but maybe that was part of it for him- the fact that he was older and that she was young as they kissed, she found herself carried away by the fantasy of such pure ego that she could hardly even admit to herself that she was having it. Look at this beautiful girl she imagined him thinking. She's so perfect. Her body is perfect. Everything about her is perfect. She's only 20 years old. Her skin is flawless. I want her so badly. I want her more badly than I've... I want her more than I've wanted anyone else. I want her so bad I might die. The more she imagined his arousal, the more turned on she got, and soon they were rocking against each other, getting into a rhythm, and she reached into his underwear and took his penis in her hand and felt the pearl droplet of moisture on its tip. He made that sound again, that high-pitched feminine whine, and she wished that there was a way she could ask him not to do that, but she couldn't think of any. Then his hand was inside of her underwear, and he felt where she was wet. He visibly relaxed. He fingered her a little, very softly, and she bit her lip, and she put on a show for him. And But then he poked her too hardly, and she flinched, and he jerked his hand away. Sorry, he said. And then he asked urgently, wait, have you done this before? The night did, indeed, feel so odd and unprecedented that her first impulse was to say no, but then she realized what he meant, and she laughed out loud. She didn't mean to laugh. She knew well enough already that Robert might not enjoy being the subject of gentle flirtatious teasing. He was not a person who would enjoy being laughed at, not at all. But she couldn't help it. Losing her virginity had been a long, drawn-out affair preceded by several months' worth of intense discussions with her boyfriend of two years, plus a visit to the gynecologist, and a horribly embarrassing but ultimately incredibly meaningful conversation with her mom who in the end had not only reserved a, her a bed, a room and a bed and breakfast, but after the event had written a card. The idea that instead of the whole involved emotional process, she might have watched a pretentious Holocaust movie, drunk three beers, and then gone home, gone to the random home to lose her virginity to a guy she met at a movie theater was so funny that she suddenly couldn't stop laughing, though the laughter had an intense, slightly hysterical edge. "'I'm sorry,' Robert,' said coldly. "'I didn't know.' Abruptly, she stopped giggling. "'No, it was nice of you to check,' she said. "'I've had sex before, though.' "'I'm sorry,' I laughed. "'You don't need to apologize,' he said, "'but she can tell by his face, "'as well as by the fact that he was going soft beneath her, "'that she did.' "'I'm sorry,' she said again, reflexively, "'and then a burst of inspiration. "'I guess I'm just nervous or something.' "'He narrowed his eyes at her, "'as though suspicious of this claim, "'but it seemed to placate him. "'You don't need to be nervous.' He said, we'll take it slow. Yeah, right, she thought. And then he was on top of her again, kissing her, weighing her down. And she knew that her last chance of enjoying this encounter had disappeared and that she would carry through with it until it was over. When Robert was naked, rolling a condom onto his dick that was only half visible beneath the hairy shell of his belly. She felt the wave of revulsion that she thought might actually break her sense of pain, pen stasis. But then he shoved a finger in her again, not at all gently this time and she imagined herself from above naked and spread eagle with this fat old man's finger inside of her and the revulsion turned to self-disgust and humiliation that was kind of a cousin perverse cousin to arousal during sex <clears throat> during sex he moved her through a series of positions with brutesque efficiency flipping her over pushing her around and she felt like a doll again as she had outside the 711 though not a precious one now a doll made of rubber, flexible, and resilient, a prop for a movie that was playing in his head. When she was on top, he slapped her thigh and said, Yeah, yeah, you like that, with an intonation that made it impossible to tell whether he meant it as a question, an observation, or an order. And when he turned her over, he growled in her ear, I've always wanted to fuck a girl with nice tits, and she had to smother her face in the pillow to keep from laughing again. At the end when he was on top of her and missionary he kept losing his erection and every time he would say aggressively you make my dick so hard as though lying about it could make it true at last after a frantic rabbity burst he shuddered came and collapsed on top of her like a falling tree and crushed beneath him she thought brightly this is the worst decision i have ever made and she marveled at herself for a while At the mystery of this person who had just done this bizarre, inexplicable thing. After a short while, Robert got up and hurried to the bathroom in a bow-legged waddle, clutching the condom to keep it from falling off. Margot lay on the bed and stared at the ceiling, noticing for the first time that there were stickers on it. Those little stars and moons that were supposed to glow in the dark. Robert returned to the bathroom and stood in the doorway. "'What do you want to do now?' he asked her. "'We should probably just kill ourselves,' she imagined, saying." And then she imagined that somewhere out there in the universe, there was a boy who would think that that this moment was just as awful yet hilarious as she did. And that sometime far in the future, she would tell the boy the story and she'd say, and then he said, you make my dick so hard. And the boy would shriek in agony and grab her leg saying, oh, my God, please stop. I can't take it anymore. And. And then the two of them would collapse in each other's arms and laugh and laugh. But of course, there was no such future because no such boy existed and never would. She shrugged and Robert said, we could watch a movie and went to the computer and downloaded something. She didn't pay attention to what. For some reason, he chose a movie with subtitles and she kept closing her eyes. So she had no idea what was going on. The whole time he was stroking her hair and trailing light kisses down her shoulder as if he'd forgotten it 10 minutes ago. He'd thrown her around as if they were in a porno and growled, I always wanted to fuck a girl with nice tits in her ear. And then out of nowhere, he started talking about his feelings for her. He talked about how hard it had been for him when she went away for break, not knowing that she had an old high school boyfriend she might reconnect with back home. During those two weeks, it turned out, an entire secret drama played out in his head, one in which she com- she'd left campus committed to him, to Robert, but at home had been some drawn back to some high school guy who, in Robert's mind, was some kind of brutish, handsome jock, not worthy of her, but nonetheless seductive by virtue of his position at the top of the hierarchy back home in Saline. I was so worried that you might, like, make a bad decision and things would be different between us when you got back, he said. But I should have trusted you. My high school boyfriend is gay, Margot imagined telling him. We're, we were pretty sure of it in high school, but after you're sleeping around in college, he's definitely figured it out. In fact, he's not even 1% positive that he identifies as a man anymore. We spent a lot of time over break talking about what it would mean for him to come out as non-binary, so sex with him was not going to happen. And you could have asked me about that if you were worried, but you could have asked me about a lot of things. But she didn't say any of that. She just lay silently emanating a black, hateful aura until Robert trailed off... "'Are you still awake?' he asked, and she said yes, and he asked. "'Is everything okay?' "'How old are you exactly?' she asked. "'I'm thirty-four, he said. "'Is that a problem?' She could sense him in the dark beside her, vibrating with fear. "'No,' she said. "'It's fine.' "'Good,' he said. "'It was something I wanted to bring up with you, but I didn't know how you'd take it.' He rolled over and kissed her forehead, and she felt like a slug he poured salt on, disintegrating under that kiss." She looked at the clock. It was nearly three in the morning. I should probably go home. Really, he said. I thought you'd stay over. I make great scrambled eggs. Thanks, she said, sliding into her leggings, but I can't. My roommate would be worried. So, gotta get back to the dorm room, he said, dripping with sarcasm. Yep, since that's where I live. The drive was endless. The snow had started to turn into rain. They didn't talk. Eventually, Robert switched the radio to late-night NPR, Margaret recalled how, when they first got to the highway to go to the movies, she imagined Robert might murder her, and she thought, "'Maybe he'll murder me now.'" He didn't murder her. He drove her to the dorm. "'I had a really nice time tonight,' he said, unbuckling his seatbelt. "'Thanks,' she said. She clutched her bag in her hands. "'Me too.'" "'I'm so glad we finally got to go on a date,' he said. "'A date,' she said to her imaginary boyfriend. "'He called that a date.'" And they both laughed and laughed. You're welcome, she said. She reached for the door handle. Thanks for the movie and stuff. Wait, he said, and grabbed her arm. Come here. He dragged her back, wrapped his arms around her, and pushed his tongue down her throat one last time. Oh my god, when will it end? She asked her imaginary boyfriend, but the imaginary boyfriend didn't answer her. Good night, she said, and she'd opened the door and escaped. By the time she got back to her room, she had already had a text from him—no words, just heart face, just hearts and faces with heart eyes—and for some reason, a dolphin. She was for twelve hours, and when she woke up, she ate waffles in the dining hall and binge-watched detective shows on Netflix and tried to envision that hope—the hopeful possibility that he would disappear without having to, her having to do anything—that somehow she could just wish him away. When the next text message when the text message from him did arrive just after dinner, it was a harmless joke about red vines. But she deleted it imid- immediately, overwhelmed with a skin crawling loathing that felt vastly disproportionate to anything he had actually done. She told herself that she owed him at least a kind of breakup message. That to ghost him would be inappropriate, childish, and cruel. And if she did try to ghost him, who knew how long it would take him to get the hint? Maybe the messages would keep coming and coming, and maybe they would never end. She began drafting a message. Thank you for the nice time, but I'm not interested in a relationship right now. She kept hedging and apologizing and attempting to close the loopholes that she imagined him trying to slip through. It's okay. I'm not interested in a relationship either. Something casual is fine. So that the message got longer and longer and even more impossible to send. Meanwhile, his texts kept arriving. None of them saying anything of consequence, each one with more earnest than the last. She matched him lying on the, his bed that was just a mattress, carefully crafting each one. She remembered that he talked a lot about his cats, and yet she hadn't seen any cats in the house. And she wondered if he made them up. Every so often, over the next day, she would find herself in a gray daydream mood, missing something and realizing that it was Robert she missed. Not the real Robert, but the Robert that she imagined on the end of all those text messages during break. Hey, so it seems like you're really busy, huh? Robert finally wrote three days after they fucked. And she knew this was the perfect opportunity to send her half-completed breakup text. But instead, she wrote back, ha, ha 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 yeah, sorry, and I'll text you soon. And then she thought, why did I do that? And she truly didn't know. Just tell him you're not interested, Margot's roommate Tamara screamed in frustration after Margot spent an hour on her bed dithering about what to say to Robert. I have to say more than that. We had sex. Do you? Tamara said. I mean, really. "'He's sort of a nice guy. He's a nice guy, sort of,' Margot said, and she wondered how true that was. Then abruptly, Tamara lunged, snatching the phone out of Margot's hand and holding it away from her as her thumbs flew across the screen. Tamara flung, Tamara flung the phone on her bed, and Margot scrambled for it. And there it was, what Tamara had written. "'Hi. I'm not interested in you. Stop texting me.' "'Oh, my God,' Margot said, finding it hard to, suddenly hard to breathe. "'What?' Tamara said boldly. "'What's the big deal? It's true.' But they both knew it was a big deal, and Margot had a knot of fear in her stomach so solid that she thought she might retch. She imagined Robert picking up his phone, reading that message, turning to glass, and shattering to pieces. Calm down. Let's go get a drink, Tamara said, and they went down to a bar and shared a pitcher. And all the while, Margot's phone sat between them on the table, and though they tried to ignore it, when it chimed with an oncoming message, they screamed and clutched each other's arms. I can't do it. You read it, Margot said. She pushed the phone towards Tamar. You did this, it's your fault. But all the message said was, Okay, Margot, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope I did not do anything to upset you. You are a sweet girl and I really enjoyed the time we spent together. Please let me know if you change your mind. Margot collapsed on the table, head laying in her hands. She felt as though a leech, grown heavy and swollen with blood, had popped had at last popped off her skin, leaving a tender bruised spot behind. But why would she feel that way? Perhaps she was being unfair to Robert, who had really done nothing except like except like her, and be bad in bed and maybe lie about having cats, although probably they had just been in another room. But then a month later, she saw him at a bar, her bar, the one in the student ghetto where on the date she suggested they go. He was alone, at a table in the back, and he wasn't reading or looking at his phone. He was just sitting there, hunched over a beer. She grabbed the friend she was with, a guy named Albert. Oh my god, that's him, she whispered. That's the guy from the movie theater. By then, Albert had, ver- had heard a version of the story, though not quite the true one. Nearly all her friends had. Albert stepped in front of her, shielding her from Robert's view, as though they rushed back to the table where their friends were. When Margaret announced that Robert was there, everyone erupted in astonishment. They were surround- They were Then they surrounded her and hustled her out of the bar as if she were the president and they were the secret service. It was so over the top that she wondered if she was acting like a mean girl, but at the same time, she did feel truly sick and scared. Curled up in her bed that night, the glow of the phone like a campfire loom in their faces, Margot read the messages as they arrived. Hi, Margot. I saw you out at the bar tonight. I know I you said not to text you, but I wanted to say that you look really pretty and I hope you're doing well. I know I probably shouldn't say this, but I really miss you. Hey, maybe I don't have the right to ask, but I wish you'd tell me what it is I did wrong. Wrong. I felt like we had a real connection. That you that you did not feel that way or Maybe I was too old for you. Maybe you like someone else. Is that guy you were with tonight your boyfriend? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Or is he just some guy you're fucking? Sorry. When you laughed, when I asked you if he was a virgin, was it because you fuck so many guys? Are you fucking that guy right now? Are you? Are you? Are you? Answer me. Whore. This was a story by Kristen Rappanian on the self-deprecations of dating. It was published December 11th, 2017 in the New Yorker in the print edition. And this has been a story read by me, Kennedy Joseph. And it was truly terrifying. Not a conventional horror story, but conventional in the sense that every person that has probably ever gone on a date, especially if you are a woman, has felt like this. And I was truly terrified at many points. Not even the fact that, like, wondering if this man was going to kill her. But I knew he probably, I knew that he wasn't. But you know you feel that way. I guess. I felt that way. I felt like that. And this is how I felt, probably, feel, probably every time I've gone on a date. And, yeah, that's me. I read a story. Um, you can find me on the internet. I am on the internet. I do things on the internet. I'm kind of a funny t hee man. You can find me on Twitter at can't uh, you can find me on twitter at kenny j says hey that's kenny k-e-n-n-y the letter j s-a-y-s hey like the funny little antidote that it is kenny j says hey i write short stories and um like kind of personal essays at Trashburn diaries.blogspot.com you can also find me on instagram at cancelled like the word canceled, dot, K-E-N-N, and that is my at name. And you can also listen to my podcast. It is a podcast about romantic comedies and dating horror stories and things like that over at Flicks Before Dicks, wherever you listen to podcasts. That is all I have to promote. That is all I have to say. Alex, I hope you have fun editing this, and have a happy day.
0: That was Kennedy with cat person. Sorry. I got the title wrong the first time. Uh, this was honestly a little bit different from what we usually go with our, you know, stories. We typically go with the spooky and, you know, the suspension of disbelief, but this like Kennedy put at their final words is definitely something that happens to a lot of people, especially women when it comes to dating. Like, I know I've had some real creepers in my life and, you know, to some other people's perspective, I might have been kind of that creeper unintentionally, obviously. But, you know, it's just – dating is weird. You know, I know – no shade, you guys. I know you guys don't, you know, do it very often, but – You know, the world of dating, it's a lot of not being interested in persons. It's not, it's a lot of just finding these weird quirks in people that just turn you off permanently. It's a lot of just being ghosted and ghosting people. That's, as one of my favorite Neon Tree songs, Love in the 21st Century.
2: But Walter, did you have any thoughts on Cat Person? I I definitely think it's a scary story in a different way. Like, there were definitely points in that story where I was like, okay, that dude's kind of weird.
0: Honestly, and I told them this after I edited it, I thought he was going to turn into a cat. That's why it was called Cat Person. I didn't realize that this was the horror until, like, at the end, where, like, you know, he didn't turn into a cat person and killed her.
2: See, what I thought it was going to be was I thought, when he brought her home that he was that like either instead of them hooking up or after they hooked up, he was going to like feed her to the cats.
0: Right. Right. Well, I guess nothing like that happened, but that's okay because that's the reason of having guests on the show, differing opinions, differing, you know, just perspectives on life. Right. And Kennedy, thank you again for coming on to the show. For recording this story for us. I love you immensely. You're one of my best friends. I'm not going to do the Oprah Winfrey thing I always do when I drink. Even though I don't drink anymore. But you you know what I do. And just read that in your mind there for me this time. But uh, chugging on a little long. Walter, we have one of your friends that isn't in this room.
2: Yeah, like they exist. They they do they do exist.
1: Color me shocked.
2: Yeah, so I, he has a very strong Boston accent. All right, well, why
0: don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear right now before I put in the next tape? Tell us about your friend's story.
2: Give me a minute. I'm getting the title.
0: Oh, I, the, uh, to be honest, um. Uh, it's something cats by H.P. Lovecraft, and oh, when, when I no. see yes, when I saw cats in H.P. Lovecraft, oh, I'm like, no. what did he do? <laughs> For uh, context, guys, why don't you look up the name of H.P. Lovecraft's cat? We're not going to, we're not going to spoil it on the show tonight, but. Or, uh,
1: you can also Lovecraft
0: do they have the cat in there?
1: No, but they uh, they do talk about HP Lovecraft in this cat. At some point, yes. I think. I don't know. I'm only like <laughs> three episodes in. But they definitely talk about HP Lovecraft and uh if you know, you know.
0: And if you don't know, now you know. HP Lovecraft's cat.
2: What was named? Something bad. All right. This is going to be Stephen Barron reading The Cats of Ulthar by H.P. Lovecraft.
0: All right, let's do it to it. The
6: Cats of Ulthar by H.P. Lovecraft. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat. In this I can verily believe, as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic, and close to the strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptians, and bearer of tales from the forgotten cities in Miro and Dolphir. He is the kin of the jungle lords, and heir to the secrets of Ori and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulfar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killing of cats, there dwelt in old Cotter and his wife, who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this, I did not know save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But for whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near to their hovel, and from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife. Because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under the spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of cats hated these odd folk, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray toward the remote hovel under the dark of the trees. When through some avoidable oversight, a cat was missed, and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently, or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar was simple, and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day a dark caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the marketplace, they told fortunes for silver and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers, none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, And that they had painted on the side of their wagons strange figures with the human bodies, and heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was in this singular caravan a boy with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow. And when one is young, very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy whom the dark people called Menes, smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ulthar, Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of the sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms towards the sun, and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the cloud were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horned, flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night, the wanderers left Ulthar and were never seen again and the householders were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished, catch large and small, black, grey, striped yellow and white. Old Cranin, the Burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of many as kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Neith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Atal, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, too abreast, as if in performance of some unheard of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old codder till they met him outside his dark and unrepellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain, anger, and when the people awoke at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth. Large and small, black, grey, striped yellow and white, none was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Crenin again insisted that it was all the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all of the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious, and for two whole days of the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar, touching no food, only dozing in the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk, in the windows of that cottage under the trees. Then, the lean Neith remarked that no one had seen the old man, or his wife, since the night the cats were away. In another week, the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty, though in doing so he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and full the cutter of stone as witnesses and when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this. Two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor, and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was subsequently much talk among the burgesses of Ulthor. Zaf the coroner, disputed at length with Neith the lean notary, and Crenon and Shang and Thul were overwhelmed with questions. Even little Atal, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as a reward. They talked of the old cotter and of his wife, and of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Menes and his black kitten, of the prayer of Menes, and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left and what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end, the Burgessies passed that remarkable law, which is told by the traders in Hefe, and discussed by travelers in Nier, namely, that in Ulthar, no man may kill a cat.
0: That was really good. Thank you. Thank you, Baron, for having that on the show.
2: Yeah, uh, I really liked the imagery there with the uh, wanderers and the cats and the disappearing and the reappearing.
1: I'm just glad it's not, you know, the other cat thing.
0: <laughs> other cat? Th- oh, HP Lovecraft's cat. That one. So before we do our last two guest segments, Bobby, why don't you read us another story?
1: You see, I have to go back into the app, pull it up. Give me just a moment.
0: We told you you were going to do three of these.
1: Well, it wasn't on paper.
0: God damn it, Bobby. This is all staying on the show, by the way. Okay. This episode hasn't been long enough already. We're already at about a hundred and... 100. We're about an hour 46 in.
1: It'll be a miracle if anybody actually listens to the full thing. Uh, hundred
2: hours
0: in. We'll have people listen, don't worry.
1: I mean, I know my dad will listen.
2: Yeah. I got us a oh! I got us another sub. A sub, oh.
0: a subscriber. Yeah. Very nice. On, a Spotify. No, he's nice, nice,
1: nice. You didn't get us a, a sub, you bastard.
0: <sighs> I don't like Jersey Mike's. I'm uh, you know me. I'm a Jimmy John's boy.
1: Well, yeah, I used to work there. Yeah,
0: I used to run around in the Jimmy John's uniform, giving people Jimmy Johns.
1: See, I wish. Jersey Mike's people did that, but they don't.
0: No, they can't wear the Jimmy John's uniform if they work at Jersey Mike's.
1: (laughs) They also can't deliver their own food, which is why, like... Uber Eats does it. So does DoorDash. I should
2: know. I've delivered from there before.
1: Right. Must be nice, Mr. Oh, the app kicked me out, so I'm not doing it anymore.
0: Well, people started the report that they found Sasquatch hair in their food
1: truly really unfortunate
0: yeah bobby you got it
1: right. i'm still scrolling i me really a second a lot of these uh short stories you uh recommended to me are uh, a uh-huh. little cringe
2: i've
1: skimmed through some of these i'm legitimately just uncomfortable trying to read these isn't that the
0: point of like creepy stories
1: like, not even, like, the creepy factor. It's more like the, wow, if I, like, say these words out loud, I'm going to sound like a terrible human being. That factor. Like, there's one about a support group, and I'm not going to read that one because uh, it's about a support group.
0: all you support groups out there, email the show at...
2: Contact Bobby's personal phone
0: hat. You know, I accidentally did that to a friend once. Oh, no. I, I, I doxed him in a meme.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> there was
0: this meme around. You know that whole thing where it's like uh, uh, someone sends someone a picture of a gun and it's like, uh, you seem cool. Don't go to school tomorrow.
4: Yeah. Oh, no. I, I
0: did one of those, but I did it where, like, it was uh it was a lightsaber. And it was from Anakin Skywalker, and it was like, "You seem cool. Don't go to the Jedi Temple tomorrow." <laughs> and then it was like, "Thanks, fam." And like, my contact was like one of the little kids in the Tag of the Clones that was uh, getting the training from Yoda, and uh, I accidentally forgot to blur uh, to blur out his number. So, like, for a year and a half, he would just get people calling him saying, "Anakin Skywalker."
2: Oh, no.
0: Yeah, so I accidentally doxed my friend Nick. If you listen to this show ever, I'm still really sorry for doxing you, and I I wonder if you still get Anakin Skywalker um, uh, text messages and calls. I am so, so fucking sorry.
1: If you're looking for Anakin Skywalker, contact Alex's friend Nick at... <laughs>
0: All right, so you got this?
1: Yeah, we're going to end on a real low note. This one's called A Message from Your Personal Demons. Believe me, I'm used, to,
0: I'm used to sending on really low notes.
1: But this might be the lowest note that we've ever ended on.
0: <laughs> I don't know, man. We've done a birthday show for Walter.
1: This might be lower than that. <laughs> All right. Hello, my dear. You do not know who I am, but I know you. I'm one of the three demons that were assigned to you at birth. You see, some people in this world are destined for greatness, destined to live happy, fulfilling lives. You, I am afraid, are not one of those people, and it is our job to make sure of that. Who are we? Oh yes, of course, how rude of me. Allow me to introduce us. Shame is my younger brother, the demon on your left shoulder. Shame tells you that you are a freak, that those thoughts you have are not normal, that you will never fit in. Shame whispered into your ear when your mother found you playing with yourself as a child. Shame is the one who makes you hate yourself. Fear sits on your right shoulder. He is my older brother, as old as life itself. Fear fills every dark corner with monsters, turns every stranger on a dark street into a murderer. Fear stops you from telling your crush how you feel. He tells you that it is better not to try than let people see you fail. Fear makes you build your own prison. Who am I then? I am the worst of your demons, but you see me as a friend. You turn to me when you have nothing else because I live in your heart. I'm the one who forces you to endure, the one who prolongs your torment. Sincerely, hope. That's it. That's it.
0: Oh my God. Thank you for picking that from the best of Tumblr.blogspot.com. <laughs> uh,
1: like I said, real low ending.
0: Yeah, uh, but it's not quite our ending because we still got some more guest stories. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to turn things over to my buddy Chen to drop a spaghetti pile of informacione.
3: Hello, Mario. Hello. My name is Christian of Twin Sons Outpost, and first of all, I'd like to thank my good friend Arode for inviting me to be on the show and do a little segment about The Rake. So, here we go. During the summer of 2003... Events in northeastern United States involving a strange, human-like creature sparked a brief local media interest before a blackout was enacted. Little information was left behind. Most accounts were destroyed. Primarily focused in rural New York, self-proclaimed witnesses told their stories of their encounters with a creature of an unknown origin. While published versions are no longer on records, their powerful memories remain. Several got together looking for answers that year and in an early 2006 collaboration of nearly two dozen documents dating between the 12th century and the present day, spanning four continents. Almost all cases of the stories were identical. I have been in contact with a member of this group, so I'm able to get a few excerpts. One such excerpt is a suicide note dating from 1964. As I prepare to take my life, I feel it necessary to assuage any guilt or pain I've introduced to this act it's not the fault of anyone other than him once I awake and felt his presence once I awoke and feel his form again once I awoke and heard his voice looked into his eyes I can never wake again goodbye in that same box where that suicide note was left they found one other personal letter simply stating dearest Lenny I have prayed for you for he spoke your name They also found a journal from Spain dating back from 1880. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I see his eyes when I close mine. Hollow. Black. They pierce me. His voice, and then it cut out. They found one on a shipwreck of a mariner's log in 1691. He came to me in my sleep, the foot of my bed. I felt a sensation. He took everything from me. We must return to England. We shall not return here again at his request. One of the most recent ones we found dated from 2006, an account of a wife from her family. Three years ago, I had just returned from a trip to Niagara Falls with my family for the 4th of July. We were all very exhausted after a long day of driving. My husband and I put the kids to bed right when we got in, and we called it a night. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the restroom. I used a moment to steal back the sheets, only to wake him in the process. I apologized to him, and I thought he got out of the bed he turned to face me and gasped pulled up his feet from the end of the bed so quickly his knee almost knocked me off the bed he grabbed me pulling me tighter saying nothing after adjusting to the darkness for about half a second i was able to see what caused his reaction at the foot of the bed sitting and facing away from us there appeared to be a naked man no more a large hairless dog of some sort its body was contorted and disturbing and unnatural it's as if it had been hit by a car for some reason i was not frightened by it but more concerned for its condition i felt we were supposed to help him my husband was peering at me over his arm and his knee tucked into the fetal position he glanced at me and then returned glancing at the creature in a flurry of motion the creature scrambled around the side of the bed crawling and flailing around until it was less than a foot from my husband's face the creature stood there completely silent for about 30 seconds that's how long it felt like i'm guessing there was only a few he just stared at him and placed his hand on his knee and ran right into our hallway that led to our kids room i screamed and ran for the light switch planning to stop him before he could get there and hurt my children when i got to the hallway i could see in the light from the bedroom it was enough to see it crouching hunched over about 20 feet away from me he turned around and stared at me piercing into my soul he was covered in blood i flipped on the switch on the wall and saw he had my daughter clara He ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and only spoke once more in her short life. He is the rake. My husband drove his car into a lake that night. He was rushing our daughter to the hospital. Neither of them survived. We lived in a small town, so news got around quickly. The police tried to be helpful at first, and a local newspaper took down a lot of interest as well. Nothing happened with the police, and the story was never published. For a long time, my son and I stayed at a hotel near my parents' house. We decided to finally return home. I began to look for answers. I eventually found a man in the town next over, similar story to mine. We got in contact, and we began swapping experiences. He knew of two other people in the state who had seen the creature, and now referred to as The Rake. It took the four of us two years of researching to come up with a small collection of accounts that we believed to be of the rake. None of them give them any details or any history. One journal had an entry involving the creature in its first three pages, and it was never mentioned again. A ship's log explained nothing in the encounter, saying that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in that log. There were, however, many instances where the creature's visit was one of a series in the same person. Multiple people mentioned being spoken to, just like my daughter. Made me wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter we had with him. I decided to set up a digital recorder near my bed, left it running all night, every night, for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around in my sleep. By the end of the second week, I had found nothing. This process took me hours every day. However, during the third week, I thought I heard something different. I found that shrill voice his voice I can't even listen to it long enough to begin to try to transcribe it I haven't let anyone else listen to it yet all I know is I have heard it before I believe this is the voice that was spoken to when it was sitting in front of my husband I don't remember hearing anything at the time but the voice immediately brings me back to that moment I have not seen the rake since he had ruined my life that night but I do know he has been in my room while I have slept I know that one night I will wake up to see Him again for it will be My turn And we're back Damn
0: Chen That was a really just Creepy story man
2: Yeah that was uh That was dark
0: Yeah, This is definitely uh really uh Creepypasta classics here we got You know smile.jpg Jeff the killer um The rake next year we gotta Cover Slenderman I guess <laughs> You gotta play, like, the eight pages or whatever. Or the Arrival, whatever whatever game it is.
2: Oh, the eight pages. Oh, God.
1: Insert statement about teenagers here. You know what I'm talking about.
0: They scared the living shit out of me?
1: Damn it! You know what I'm talking about.
0: Yes, yes, we all know what you're talking about. They died, Bobby.
1: I and mean, in Marvel went to prison. Oh, they did? Yeah. 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 I saw this as an adult.
0: Oh, my God. All right. So um, final guest story of the night is another friend of mine, Tyler. Um, We're just going to let him uh, take things away with his story.
4: When I got the first one, I was literally moments away from stepping onto the plane when an incoming call from unknown blared from my cell phone. It was a ringtone I hadn't heard before, one I was pretty sure hadn't come with the phone. Normally, I wouldn't have stopped to answer it, but I was expecting a call about a job I had interviewed for the previous week. I took a deep breath in and accepted the call. Hello? Do not get on the plane. A woman's voice gargled and strange, as if her vocal cords had been shredded, and she was trying desperately to choke out her speech. Despite the unnerving, fractured quality of her voice, her tone was insistent and eerily calm. Then the call ended. I froze. I froze. I had always had a slight phobia of air travel, and something about this call just... There was no way I was about to get on a 7 hour flight now. I turned around and headed towards the food court. I'd just get another flight later in the afternoon, I figured. I watched from the airport Starbucks three hours later as every TV in the terminal lit up with the crash footage of the plane I should have been on. No survivors. Not a single one. I tried to trace the call, so did the police, but there was nothing to trace. There was no evidence my phone had received a call around that time. They analyzed phone records, incoming and outgoing communication to my phone. Nothing. I wasn't making it up. I couldn't have been. That wasn't the only call. Throughout the years, there were few and far in between, but always right, and I always listened. Do not go on that blind date. Five months later, my would-be date was convicted of killing four people, all with my hair color and build found them in a shallow grave about 250 feet from the diner he offered to take me to do not drive to the concert tonight 18 wheeler lost control and plowed into a line of cars every driver crushed everyone killed in the stretch of the freeway i would have been driving down no matter if i got a new phone if i moved across the country the calls would still come i could almost feel the presence of whatever it is whatever it was watching over me I imagined being at the bottom of the freezing ocean, still strapped into my coach section plane seat, or being in that mass grave across from the diner, or watching an 18-wheeler skidding towards my car, knowing death was imminent, and I'd get the tightest feeling in my chest. I'd think about how thin that line was, how close I'd gotten. If I hadn't had a job interview I was waiting to hear back from, I'd have a, never listened to that call in the first place, and that would be it for me. It always felt like something was coming for me. But there was always this fractured, warped voice with these calls that never seemed to exist after I heard them. Self-destructing warning signals rotting away before my eyes, and I was alive. I had a bad feeling about this cruise. I had planned it as a weeknight out with some of my friends from college, and was looking forward to a week in the tropics in the dead of winter, but part of me could almost sense that that call was coming. Maybe I'd watched Titanic one too many times, but there was a little nagging fear from the start. I hoped it would be fine, but I knew that if something was going to happen, I'd get the call. I'd know. Now, a week before, I'm set to go out on the cruise. After stepping into my apartment after returning from dinner with my friend, I notice my cell has a message from unknown. They've never had to leave a message before. Haven't checked it all night. I really wanted to go on that cruise, too. Not worth whatever horrific fate awaited for me in the cold Dardo ocean. I click play message and feel my stomach drop as I listen to the voice sounding horrifically distorted as if it emanates from a throat slashed to ribbons. Crackling with more urgency than ever before, I look around my apartment as the voice on the phone repeats the same phrase over and over again. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight.
0: And that was Tyler with distorted warning signals. What did you all think?
2: My God. Uh, That's unsettling.
0: Yeah, honestly, this might be, you know, this this is a really great one. I'm not going to say that it's my favorite of the night. Obviously, I can't do that to my friends, but uh, definitely... I I love this one. This one's really good. Uh, Tyler, your reading was really good on it. I really like that you added the rain effects. That was not me editing it. Uh, He gave me the audio file with those rain effects, and that really adds to the eeriness of it. It kind of reminds me of that one uh, movie, One Missed Call. But that one is where you get a phone message with your death.
2: And then you die. Yeah, and then you die. I've heard that movie was bad.
0: It was a two thousands horror movie, didn't we say in our Omen review? A lot of those sucked.
2: Oh, uh,
0: most of
2: them. Sucked. I feel
1: like I feel like it's been revisited. I could look into it, but I'm pretty sure any incarnation of uh, of that movie is probably terrible. Right. Oh, oh. There's one two thousand three. Uh-huh. A sequel in 2005. Uh-huh. And then, I'm assuming a remake in 2008. Oh, Jesus. <clears throat> wasn't, wait, wasn't one of them an Asian horror movie?
2: Maybe the original?
1: <clears throat> well, yeah, the original was a Miike film. Okay. Okay.
2: So, American version of an Asian horror film. We know how great those usually <laughs> end up. Usually pretty great with the ring and the grudge. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, fair.
0: <laughs> you're thinking like German, like, uh, let the right one in and let me in. But those were made by the same director. Uh, the director did it twice, I think, like with Funny Game.
2: I've heard. No,
0: I've wait, actually, that's not what happened. You heard.
2: I've heard let the right one in is really good.
0: Hmm. Okay.
2: I haven't heard that much about Let Me In, because that's the American version, right?
0: No, Let the Right One In is the German version. Let Me In is the right. The Chloe Grace Moretz, one, which Chloe Grace Moretz, you know.
2: I haven't heard much about that one. I've heard the original is really good.
0: Right. Well, boys, why don't we kick it with our final story of the night, which, as per tradition, as this is our second time doing the Halloween special, is uh, a group read. I chose Chatroom D this year. Uh, we all know our roles. It's part uh, narrative, part chat room based. So, you guys got it pulled up on your phones? Yep. Bobby, is that a yes? It's an audio podcast, you know?
1: Yeah, I know. But like, you're here, you have eyes. You have <sighs> glasses. I damn I realize it, I'm the only person in this room that has 2020 vision me. Okay, it's okay, not I the, feel like. it's a silent gesture,
2: you fuck.
0: I feel like if you get an eye test, you might need glasses.
1: I went to the DVD and all of those things,
2: but to the And also, silent gestures
1: don't work on audio podcasts. Nobody's fucking listening to the silent gestures, you fucking Bobby. Cup. Bobby. do you have the story yes it's pulled up okay Jesus! my fucking god oh my god this is a shit show we're doing actually really good i know we are all
0: right let's start chat room d let me tell you a little bit about myself my name is natalie and i have a twin sister named megan i also have an older sister But I won't mention her name, as this is not a story that concerns her. My twin sister and I shared a room at the back of our house for almost all 15 years we've been alive. The yellow painted walls and the movie posters draped around them. Reminded us of safety. The room belonged to us. I slept in a single bed on the left side of the room, and Megan used to sleep on a single bed on the right side of the room. Although, this was the most common setup of our sleeping arrangements— We tended to rearrange often. We would sometimes push our beds together to make a double bed, just to feel safer when we heard the house settling in the middle of the night. I remember that one time my sister and I were told that we were going to get bunk beds in our room and our single beds would be thrown away or given to charity. We displayed such distaste in this idea that our parents instead forced us to keep the single beds until we were well into our teen years. As we grew bigger, the beds seemed to grow smaller. We soon came to the realization that we could no longer share the room in the back of the house with the yellow walls. One of us would need to leave. Megan was the one who moved out, if you will. My older sister had turned 15... 18. My older sister had turned 18, finished school, and was taking a gap year overseas. A perfectly good bedroom with a perfectly good double bed was her departing gift to us. Left behind after she had left home. Megan took that room as her own, immediately, and began to redecorate. She now had a room to herself, and so did I. It was exciting to begin with. She could play the music she wanted without me yelling at her to plug in her headphones, and I could write stories and watch videos without her watching over my shoulder. Yes, like I said before, the start of the change was a new and fun experience for, her both, for us both. But the longer we stayed away from each other, the lonelier, the lonelier we became— We would have walked into each other's rooms and struck up a conversation at any time, deciding the rooms were right next to each other. But I guess neither of us really wanted to admit that we were having second thoughts about our new rooms. This is during the time when Facebook was really new and kind of unheard of, and Nintendo DSs were all the rage. PictoChat was a feature on the Nintendo DS, where you were able to chat with one another by either typing slowly and tediously, with a stylus or handwriting a message with the stylus on the touch screen. Megan and I often chose the latter option as it was much faster and you could recognize the handwriting. There were four chat rooms you could choose from, A, B, C, and D, and the Nintendo DS's could wirelessly connect over a short distance and recognize which chat room the other person had entered. Megan and I began to communicate through PictoChat and we often took turns in choosing the chat room to pick one would wait while the other picked the chat room and then they would join them in the chat in that chat room it was really fun and you could write just about anything you wanted without the fear of being recorded or traced as a conversation would delete itself as soon as you left so megan would be in her room and it would and i would be in mine and we would talk for hours on picto chat after the sun had gone to sleep it's kind of a weird way to say you know <laughs> at night but who might i say i'm breaking character right now but About every noise we heard in the house. About how scary it was to have the entire room to ourselves about random and pointless things that happened during the day. And then, after about a few weeks of this, something really weird happened. One night I was waiting for Megan to pick a chat room so I could enter and talk to her. She was taking forever to pick one. And we always turned our DSs on at the same time each night. We followed the same pattern, and she knew it was her turn to pick. Seeing as her room was next to mine, I leaned over and tapped the wall. She tapped back and entered chat room D. Finally, she had responded. As soon as you enter a chat room, you're able to see who else is in it. Expecting to see Megan 12 pop up in purple as soon as I entered, I was surprised and said to find DTDTDJUD3 in blue. Cool, I thought. Someone next door must have a DS as well, and I can talk to him. At the time, it was really excited, exciting. I'd always wanted to be able to talk to a new person on Picto Chat because it was only ever Megan and I who would talk. D T D T D J U D three. Send me a message before I could send them one. It read, "Are you sure you should be up at this late?" All typed out instead of being written by hand with the stylus. I messaged them back, <clears throat> typing as well, to make them feel comfortable. Below is as much of the conversation as I can remember. Nat's cat, Nat's cats 33 I could ask you the same. What is your name?
2: DTDTDJUD3. Only do that, like, once. You can see my name on the top left hand of the message. I mean your real name. My name is D. Is that your favorite letter or something? Are you mocking me? No,
0: I'm sorry. How are you?
2: Not happy. I've been fighting a lot lately.
0: I rendered anything from next
2: door. That's because... We don't let you, Natalie.
0: DTDT DJ UD 3 has left the chat. I stared at the touch screen of my Nintendo DS, completely shocked and amazed at what had just happened. I almost wanted to take a picture of the screen, just to confirm to myself that it had in fact happened. How do they know my name? Who were these people? Where are... Were they even people? As sinister theories began to fill my mind, I forced myself to sleep. I didn't want to think about it anymore that night. The next day when Megan woke up, I walked into her room and asked why she hadn't gone into the chat room last night. She apologized and said she had fallen asleep, accidentally fallen asleep reading about a half an hour earlier than the appointed time we used to talk. I told her not to lie to me, and she suddenly got really defensive.
1: Why would I be lying?
0: She said. Because I heard you knock back on the wall, Megan. I'm not an idiot. I just wanted to know. And he had to turn, uh, and he had to turn it into a fight. I said, turning the walk out of her room.
1: Are you serious, Natalie? Are you actually being serious right
0: now? She said, her voice filled with worry. Yes, I said. And now suddenly concerned at her dramatic shift in tone. Why?
1: I never knocked on any walls last night, Natalie. Not once.
0: I left the room with a sigh, assuming she was trying to scare me. I wasn't going to fall for it. I felt clever for seeing through a jump trick. I didn't talk to her at all that day, despite the nervous glances she gave me every time I passed her. I had decided that on PictoChat that night, I was going to congratulate her for her acting performance, but tell her I had had enough of her game and I wanted my normal sister back. I climbed into my bed and pulled up a blanket and pulled the blanket up to my chin. I grabbed my DS, entered a chat room, and waited. Nat's cat 33 has entered the chat room. DT, DT, DJ, UD3 has entered the chat room.
2: Hi, welcome back.
0: Why did you pick chat room A? Hi, I'm waiting for my sister. I didn't expect you to answer. Why didn't you pick D? How did you know my name last night, by the way?
2: I don't care. Go to chat room D now. Okay, chill. We can go there.
0: You can meet my sister. Good. As long as you tell me how you knew my name. DT, DJ, U, D3 has left the chat room. NatsCats, 33, has left the chat room. Megan, 12, has entered the chat room. Go to chat room D. Some guy is in there.
1: Really? Another person?
0: Yeah, he's a bit weird. Let's just go. Okay. Megan and I had both left the chat room and entered chat room D. The following is a conversation which I can vividly remember. NatsCats33 has entered the chat room. DTDTDJUD3 has entered the chat room. Megan12 has entered the chat room.
2: Hello. It feels good to talk to you again.
1: How did you know my name? You're my sister, that's all. Not
0: you. DTDTDJUD3 up there. I like the letter D.
1: There's no one else here. Why are you typing?
0: Nice try, Megan. He just sent a message. It starts the best words.
1: Are you okay, Natalie?
0: Megan, look, I can show you. I left the room and walked into my sister's. I showed her the screen where her messages had appeared, and she stared wide-eyed at the screen. And then she showed me her screen where none of DTDT... The, where none of these messages had shown up. I was bewildered. That wasn't a glitch, was it? No glitches do that sort of thing. The message hadn't just appeared on her screen and it didn't even say that he was in the chat room on her device. I heard a familiar ping, and then looked up at my chat screen. Another message.
2: Don't you think so, too? D starts the best words, doesn't it? What? Like, dessert? No. Disease. Disaster. Diabolical. Destroy. Damned. Defeat. Danger. Deceived. Decline. Demonic. And my favorite... Death.
0: D has left the chat room. Megan and I both decided that at that moment to stay away from PictoChat for a while. We soon came to the realization that whoever it was, they weren't nice. They didn't want to be friends. They wanted to hurt someone. I left the chat room and so did Megan. And as soon as we did, we knew we couldn't tell our parents. We had just destroyed the evidence. We would just have to pretend like it didn't happen. A few weeks later, we had not forgotten about what happened. No more unusual things had been happening, so life went on as normal. Megan was missing her single bed, so I offered to swap her double bed into my room, and she could take the single bed out. She was thrilled at the idea, and I thought she had gotten the short end of the stick. She was stuck with an old single bed, and now I had so much more to sleep, more space to sleep. I was definitely winning. That night, to celebrate, Megan agreed to watch a scary movie with me, I say celebrate because she only did it did this on rare occasions and so I used to I used every excuse I could to get her to watch one with me she had a tendency to get nightmares you see but because she was happy with the state of her new room and also because we were missing our older sister we snuggled up to watch a horror flick I have to admit it was actually terrifying the story idea was a bone chilling it was bone chilling creepy and the scenes were shot so well that you thought you were actually part of the movie when the film had finished Megan and I looked at each other in horror I wouldn't be surprised if I had a nightmare tonight, I said and we laughed a little our nerve returning we finally gathered enough courage to leave the room and go to bed I said goodnight to her and walked into my room jumping into the new uh, double bed and switched off the lights
5: this
0: is really a mouthful a couple of hours into a deep slumber, I awake to the sound of the, my bedroom door opening. Megan, she must have had a nightmare and came to my room for safety. I notice something rectangular and black in her hands. Then I conclude that it must be her DS. And I proceed to pull out my own immediately. She obviously wants to talk to me about the movie, and she is being smart. We don't want to wake up mom or dad. She crawls into my bed next to me and faces the opposite direction. I can feel her back almost against mine. I flip over my screen and enter the only chat room with another person in it. Chat room D. Nats Cat has entered the room, uh, chat room. Megan 12 has entered the chat room. Couldn't sleep?
1: You shouldn't watch the movie, huh? Maybe not. I had a nightmare. Sorry if I woke you up. Didn't realize it was that loud.
0: Well, you were smart to come in here. You can feel safe with me. I can hear her clacking away with her stylus on her Nintendo DS behind me. And I almost laugh. How silly that we weren't talking face-to-face. Face. I can feel the weight of her body pushing the mattress beside me. I think about turning to face her till I hear that all-too-familiar ping ring out of my DS. A new message. I look down at the screen. D T DJ UD3 has entered the chat room.
1: You
2: breathe funny.
1: What? I'm in my own room.
0: And There we go. There we go. What'd you guys think? Also, why don't we make this quick, because the power <sighs> saver says that I have 17% on my battery.
2: That's a messed up story.
0: Oh, yes. I
1: yes. mean, we read some cringe. That was, uh, that was some cringe.
0: This was some cringe? That was some cringe. Because we were pretending to be little girls? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean at least two of us are uh 20 something we're we're uh much closer to being women yeah i was gonna (laughs) i was gonna say young oh yeah Walter. so boys
0: (laughs) um i believe that is about it for us huh yeah i would think that's our horror movie uh, that's our that's our halloween special this year uh Damn. So, just overall, did you guys have a good time?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, it's an experience. Except for that pre time where uh, I had heartburn. So, uh,
0: I guess this concludes another year, another Halloween story episode, and uh, thank you for joining me, boys.
2: Thank you for having us.
6: Good
0: night. Good night, everybody. Candle went out.